I'm 63 years old, so I grew up in an era where the term queer was used as a pejorative. And honestly, it took me a while to warm up to the word, realize that the word was being reclaimed, um, particularly by the generation that has followed me. Welcome to Queering Contemplation, a podcast about the intimate and innate ways contemplation is queer. These conversations will examine the ways contemplative life invites us into expressions beyond boxes and categories, moving us towards love, embodiment, liberation, delight, and wonder. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, award-winning filmmaker, podcaster, and author of the forthcoming book, Queering Contemplation, Finding Queerness in the Roots and Future of Contemplative Spirituality. Welcome to the conversation. The Reverend Nicole M. Garcia identifies as a queer transgender Latina. Nicole earned a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology from CU Denver and is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Colorado. Nicole earned a Master's of Divinity from Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She is a former member and faculty emeritus of the Trans Seminarian Leadership Cohort. Nicole is dedicated to preaching queer liberation theology and is passionate about doing the work of moving social justice from a concept to a reality. So Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. It is a delight and an honor to meet you. I've been following your work and I'm just so grateful for your voice in this world. So one of the questions I love to ask in the beginning is, kind of just how do you define and experience the word queer in your own life, in your spirituality, and in your work? You know, I'm 63 years old, so I grew up in an era where the term queer was used as a pejorative. And honestly, it took me a while to warm up to the word, realize that the word was being reclaimed, um, particularly by the generation that has followed me. And in my own experience, I, I came to the recognition as I was coming out and coming to terms of who I am as uh, a, a human being in terms of my sexuality and gender identity, I realized that I would have always been bisexual. There were times in my life when I would be, be dating men and there are times in my life I'd be dating women. and. Um, I realized after I started transitioning and I got divorced because I was married to a woman for eight years, trying very hard to live into the concept of, of, of the man I'm supposed to be, I started dating um, trans women. And some were post and some were um, preoperative. And so, and it gets kind of like, well, if the individual has a piece of part like this or a piece of or part like that, how do you, and it's like, it's just much easier to say, I'm queer. I'm attracted to an individual that I feel I have an emotional connection to. Um, we share things in common, people I want to spend time with. And then if we want to have an intimate experience, we can, but it's just too hard to say, one thing. So queer is a really nice for me, an umbrella term. Yeah, I love, I love the way you describe that. Just in my own experience of being queer, that clarity 
while also being free beyond binaries, categories, and boxes. Um, I think that's one thing that a lot of people misinterpret queerness as almost like so ambiguous or so so much of everything that it's nothing. And I think, you know, the ways that we live it out as queer folks in particular spaces just really, yeah, enlivens and awakens, I think, maybe all of us to to more more freedom and expanse. Yeah, I, I agree. It really is a rejection of any binary thinking. You know, oftentimes the, the term gender queer is used to say there's a re- complete rejection of the gender binary. For me, uh, queerness explains my sexual orientation because I do identify as a transgender Latina. And as I said before, I came in a generation where I was um, socialized for 42 years into this concept of very macho male masculinity. And so when I transitioned, I essentially, in my head, because of my socialization into that binary, I transitioned and became my mother. Luckily, I loved my mother. But that's why I use the term Latina for me, because it was an ev- evolutionary process to become the person that I, I see and know myself to be. Another question I have for you, Nicole, is about, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the importance of not just queer voices being heard, but the specificity of your voice as a trans Latina woman being heard, especially in this time where there's so many anti-LGBTQIA bills and in a time where part of what's part of the narrative that's being used in those bills is religious or psychology related. And, and you also, you know, pursued those fields in particular. I seem to have the the ability to sit at tables where um, so many decisions are being made and cultivated the ability to sit at a table with bishops or sit at the table with professors and be taken seriously. And part of that is because I have taken the time to gain the education that they respect. And unfortunately, that is a big, big part of the way empire has kept us marginalized is because so many of us who identify as people of color are not afforded the opportunity to pursue education. I've been incredibly lucky in that I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. I went to a very respected high school, Fairview High School, and I was able to get into the University of Colorado Boulder when the Chicano Studies programs were just being rolled out. And so I got my undergraduate degree in political science. Um, I learned how to play the game. And I learned what's respected and what is needed. And um, I ended up getting a job in law enforcement and wore a badge. And that carries a certain amount of respect. And in many ways, I've lived the life, I often say, of a collaborator. I've been part of the system in so many different ways. But I also want to use the whatever perceived power I may be given 
to really introduce people to a different way of thinking and a different way of approaching life. That when sitting and talking about theology in very orthodox Lutheran terms, I can start dropping some stories about queer, uh, a queer reading of, of scripture, that there's so many different queer characters in scripture. And people will look at me and say, I never thought of it that way. And they haven't. And I do that by getting invited to sit at these tables where I really have no place to be, but I have played the game and I've done a relatively good job doing it. Yeah. I was really struck by you saying education that they respect. You know, it reminded me a little bit of the trickster image and the ways in which the trickster image and which I really experience as spirit often in my life that can help help make ways to get to those tables, to have those conversations. Of course, those conversations aren't safe for everyone to have. And being able to have those conversations on behalf of those who can't is also a really uh, powerful role. You, you said something that is so incredibly true, is that these conversations are difficult. It's difficult being at a table and hearing people espouse beliefs that are very much contrary to what I believe. And that's why I have a really good therapist. That's why I have a really good spiritual director so that I can go in and I can process what's happening to me and sit there with a smile and say, yes, I totally understand what I'm thinking to myself is, oh my gosh, you are just a self-centered SOB. And I just want to jump up, up off this table and do something that will get me into prison. We have to be able to walk into these spaces where our ideas and thoughts and ways of looking at the world are challenged and being able to sit there and calmly formulate a response and then come home and scream into my pillow and then call my best friends and just say, oh my gosh, I can't believe these people still believe this stuff. Yeah. And you've also done a lot of work in queer liberation theology. And I, I heard you earlier talk about queer readings of the biblical text. I wonder if you could share a little bit more about how you see yourself using both of those in your everyday life and maybe just uh, share for those listening what queer liberation theology is. For me, there, there are you know, a few different ways to interpret queer liberation theology or queer theology. But for me, we all look at theology through a lens of our own experience. So the vast majority of the texts, the translations that we, re we read now were translated by um, white, heterosexual, cisgender men. And that's how they saw the world. Luckily, there are a lot of different commentaries that are coming out. Queering Torah is a really good one. I just saw that I just got a new, um, I believe it's a, a queer commentary, looking at the lenses, the hermeneutical lens um, of a queer person. So when I read, for example, the story of Jacob and Joseph, so, you know, Jacob, who was of smooth skin, was always in the tents with the women, had a youngest son named Joseph. And Jacob gave Joseph a garment, which is translated typically as a coat with long sleeves. And they referred to the garment in the, in the Hebrew text as a keshet pasim. We learn how to translate 
all these different words by using the words in different contexts. The only other place that Keshet Hasim is used is when the father of Tamar gives Tamar a dress. Keshet Hashim is given to Tamar as a princess dress. When jo they're talking about Joseph, it's called a coat with long sleeves. But if we use the same content, same way it's used in uh, referring to Tamar, then I see Jacob recognizing that Joseph was actually trans or a drag queen or a crossdresser. And when the brothers attacked Joseph, they, they beat him, threw them into a pit, but they tore up the garment. The garment was the most offensive to them and covered it with blood and took it back to, um, to Jacob. They objected to the fact that their perceived brother, who was actually genderqueer, they couldn't tolerate the way Joseph dressed. And I love the fact that Joseph ended up in Egypt, because what is Egypt famous for? But all the beautiful way they dress, the wigs and the makeup. Joseph ended up in a place where they could express themselves beautifully. Oh, I love I love that story because we're not just queering the text, we're interpreting it with, you know, the accuracy of how the words are used elsewhere. And, and I think that's really powerful and important for people to understand. Well, if we look back to Judges 4, Deborah was a judge and it's mentioned that Deborah was married, but that was out of necessity and Deborah wore the garb of a man, went into battle, led an army. And I'm I'm fervently, I'm really convinced that Deborah would identify as either non-binary transmasculine or as a man if they were given that opportunity. You know, in the text it said that um, the battle would be ended when the um, opposing king would be stabbed in the head with a peg by a woman. And the original assumption is, well, it would be Deborah, but no, it wasn't. And, you know, the one character in the Bible that really convinced me and let me know that I could be baptized was that from Acts 8, verses 26 to 41, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip was guided by the Spirit, by an angel, to go down a road that they had no business going down. Getting into the chariot was someone that they had no business associating with, someone who was identified as Ethiopian, who was a person of faith because they had gone to the temple and they were reading scripture from Isaiah, but they were also a eunuch, so therefore they could not actually go into any place except the most public places of the temple, but they were a person of faith. And Philip was commanded to go into that chariot and they essentially had the first Bible study, you know, talking about the gospel where Philip was telling the eunuch all about Jesus Christ. And when the eunuch said, there's water, why, I, will, I want to be baptized. And rather than Philip saying, well, let's go through the law. And these are the reasons why the chariot was stopped and the eunuch was baptized and Philip was transported somewhere else. The eunuch was a person of color whose gender identity was unknown. That was me. I am the Ethiopian eunuch, and I can be baptized. It's there in Scripture. 
Yeah. One thing I love about what you're saying is the ways that it reminds us that when we pay attention, these stories are embedded in our histories, embedded in scriptures. And I think one thing I'd love to hear you speak to is that it's about seeing ourselves and knowing that there is a a way for us, a route for us to be who we are in, in some way, right? Like a, the path is before us. And I think a lot of people here might hear us sharing these stories or talking about these stories and think it's about justifying ourselves and, you know, the apologetics of who we are. And so I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the the power of seeing ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to New York City this weekend and um, my partner and I, of course, are going to stop at the Stonewall Inn. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm so touched by the power of seeing ourselves, the path paved before us and, and the ways in which it is not about justifying who we are. Yeah, that, that is so true. We, we look at so many different people in scripture and somehow we get this idea that they were perfect and that they were selected by God because they um, had something special about them. But in reality, most of the characters, if you really read them and live into who they are, they were very flawed human beings. Moses, one of the great prophets, you know, Moses was said was slow of speech, and God compromised with Moses and said, "Okay, your brother Aaron can do most of the talking, but you 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 got to lead the people." You know, one one of the um, often quoted verses from Jeremiah five about that's used in the abortion issue is that you were made perfectly in God's womb. God was speaking to Jeremiah because Jeremiah was relatively young, was very young when God called upon him to be a prophet. And Jeremiah said, yeah, no, I can't do this. I, I'm, I don't know anything. I'm not anybody. Pick someone else. And God said, I picked you when you were in your mother's womb. It was very specific. It wasn't about anybody else except Jeremiah. And as we're walking down our paths, trying to walk the journey with our Lord Jesus Christ, or walking with someone in their journey, recognizing that we each have been given different gifts and talents to use by God. So recognizing the gifts and talents that God has given each of us is so, so important. And how can we use them in community to help and support each other? Yeah. When you speak about community, and I think a lot about the the desert dwellers of third and fourth century Christianity who went moved to the desert to subvert empire and created this community and and honored each other's identities. There's a lot to learn from the way that they did community and also um, supported one another in that way. And and obviously they were huge proponents of also contemplation. And that's, you know, also a lot of our mystical writing comes from that as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if you see any connection maybe between the roles that queer Christians might be playing amid times like these and how maybe contemplative life or or mysticism might fit in that as 
as a part of movement towards, you know, towards what we're speaking about. I, I really do see that, you know, as, as a transgender Latina, I've been given the gift of having to stop in the middle of my life and really process and think about how I lived the first 42 years of my life and what composed that life. I was baptized and raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, being in a Latino family, you know, the rosary was part of, of our beliefs, our adoration of Mary, going to church every every Sunday. And then I was a really good Catholic boy. I ended up being uh, on congregational council and talking to Father Terry about being a priest when I was 18 and just absolutely loving church. But by the time I was in my early 20s, this was in you know the late um, 70s, early 80s, I realized through my Chicano studies classes that I was Catholic not because of faith, because of colonization, that I said the prayers because I was forced to say the prayers and not really truly understanding where they came from and what they meant and how they impacted my life. And so I was really disillusioned by the church on one side. And on the other side, God failed to answer my prayers. I never felt comfortable in my own body. I was always being chastised for doing the wrong thing. Rather than being in the living room or out back throwing around the football, I was in the kitchen with mama and grandma and playing with my um, sisters or female cousins and then being pushed out the door, constantly being chastised because I didn't know how to perform masculinity. And when I tried really, really, really hard. So in my early 20s, I'm like, well, the church has let me down. God has let me down. I walked away from both and spent 20 years away from the church. And in my early 40s, when I was 43, I came to the realization and recognition that I had always been Nicole. At the same time, I had a reawakening of my faith. And I realized I couldn't go back to the Roman Catholic Church, not necessarily by the because I had accepted the fact I was transgender, but because I was divorced. Um, I couldn't take communion in the Catholic Church. And I had a dear friend who introduced me to the Lutheran Church in downtown Denver, St. Paul. The pastor was gay, and it was very much, he, Pastor Kevin loved high church, so it was very similar to a Catholic mass. So I knew all the words, and I knew when to, when to you know, bow and cross myself and such, and, you know, I became a Lutheran. By October 2003, I was Lutheran through and through after I'd gone through uh, classes. And what I loved about being Lutheran is the fact that we have to know Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. You can't pull one one verse out of um, the Scripture and say that how's God. That's how God wants us to be. Always make some of my well, I make frequently make my evangelical friends rather upset because I say you know Jesus didn't have any original material. Everything came from Isaiah or Jeremiah or you know Deuteronomy, Exodus. Well, let me put it another way. I love um, the Shema, but I see it in a lens through as a, a transgender Latina in that Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, our God is one. 
God has been consistent from the time uh, of creation until now. There is nothing different. I kind of see Jesus um, in the New Testament as God basically said, okay, I'm done. I'm stopping the car and I'm and I'm coming back there. And, you know, the Lord became incarnate and came down and said, this is how we need to do it and showed us the way of having that connection with God. And having that connection, God, means stopping every day. And for me, it's saying the daily office to be able to stop and talk to God. And there are days, you know, a prayer might take five minutes because, oh, I got to do it and I have to rush through it. And there are, you know, some nights where I sit there for an hour and a half in that period of silence between prayers because I just need to be there and contemplate and wonder Am I doing the right thing? Am I walking down the right path? And I love the mystics because the mystics really pull off the veneer and want to look underneath because there is so much to this world that we really don't see. I was at a retreat center this past week um, in Montreat, North Carolina, and one of the conversations that we were having over dinner was about energy and I firmly, I live in a home that I lived in with my mother for 15 years. And mama passed away about a year, and just over a year ago. Three weeks after she passed, we had a tremendous fire in my neighborhood just outside of Louisville, Colorado, and over a thousand homes burned to the ground. I mean, literally burned to the ground. The fire was so hot. And luckily my house was, was spared. But the houses all around me, almost all of them had extensive uh, smoke damage. And so they were having insulation replaced. My neighbor had their carpet replaced. They had everything cleaned and all new paint. And I came home two days after being evacuated and didn't smell smoke in my home. I am firmly convinced that my mother's spirit, my mother protected this house. And sometimes I hear her walking around in the middle of the night, and I feel safe. Do I make it up just because I feel better that I know mama is still with me? Maybe, but I truly believe that her spirit is here. It, it's something that guides me and protects me. Is that part of mysticism? I don't know. I kind of think it is. I think the mystics are really trying to connect with more than what we can see to get down below the veneer and really connect with the spirit of God. Reminds me a little bit of what you said about you originally feeling that you were uh, Catholic because of colonization and the ways that colonization, heteronormativity, patriarchal culture influenced these things to not let us have our true mystical experiences or encounters or these kinds of sacred pauses. Even when you were talking about prayer, I was thinking sometimes the pause is the prayer. Sometimes just slowing down and being still and even, you know, thinking you're going to pray, but just pausing is the prayer. Mm -hmm. There's also the recognition in my mind. I'm, I'm devoted heart and soul to La Virgen de Guadalupe. 
the Virgin of Guadalupe. And according to the story, it was Mary, the mother of God, who appeared to Juan Diego, who was a, a native uh, convert in the year 1531 on a hill called Tepeyac outside of Mexico. I was born on December 12th, the feast day of La Virgen. So for my entire life, I know she has guided and protected me because I've always been devoted to her. I always try and, and balance the number of images I have of Guadalupe with the number of crosses I have in any room. I think I should have at least equal, maybe a few more crosses. But what I love about her image is the fact that, yes, she appeared to Juan Diego and said, I am the mother of God, but she spoke to him in his native language of Nahuatl. She also appeared to him in the native dress of the native peoples on a hill where the Aztec goddess, Tontatin, was, was revered. In many ways, we have taken the colonized religion that was forced upon us and made it our own. It happened so often. My, my grandfather was a penitente, which is a small group of very devout religious Catholics who developed their own traditions in northern New Mexico. We um, often hear of something called Santeria. Santeria, and I just read an article the other day that Santeria is making a really big comeback on the island of Cuba, and it's been all through the Caribbean. What Santeria is, essentially the joining of the Catholic traditions forced upon us by the conquistadores and the priests with the African traditions brought over when people were enslaved so that people could say the prayers so that the plantation owners would say, okay, they're praying. And then at the same time, recognizing that what has been given to us, we've made our own. Yes, I do pray to Mary, and I do say the rosary to this day, but I don't do it so that Mary could intercede on my behalf with Jesus. I do it because I want to emulate the devotion that Mary had to her son in the Gospel of John, um, the famous wedding at Cana. The people went to Mary and said, we are out of wine, and she turned to Jesus and said, they are out of, line, uh, out of wine. And he says, you know, what problem is that? I kind of think he would say, Ma, I'm trying to have a good time here. My friends and I are here. But she just turned to them and said, do as he says." She started his ministry. And she was there at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion. She was with him when the rest of the apostles and the disciples were running in fear. And she was there in the upper room. She was always with him and believed in him. And that's the faith that I want to emulate, the faith that I want to be able to call my own in that I want to be able to follow this rabbi who had this radical message of countercultural destroying the empire. He wasn't put on the cross, in my view, to pay for our sins, but rather to tear down empire. I wear a cross given to me by a dear friend and it is a cross that has loaves and fishes on it. The cross to me means that empire tried to kill the message but could not. But rather we are fed by the message given to us by Jesus. I love this, this combination of reclamation of the truth of the gospel message and reclamation of culture through the saints 
and and energies some of that has become kind of odd or strange and, and in that way do you ever feel like you're queering by coming back to that that core of of who you are queering your spirituality or your religion or the way you express yourself you know very much so uh, when when you mentioned you know the early christian societies that went away i you know very much i don't want to recreate the church but go back to what we had that first century church where everything was given to the community and no one lacked for anything people were fed people were housed people were cared for by the community and that's what i truly long for in in this society we have been told that we must be satisfied with the crumbs that are pushed off the the, the table of empire and honestly, I still have a lot of resentment towards Constantine for giving the church power. In, in the mid-300s, what government structure did the people know? They knew empire. And they created an emperor. They created princes. They created the armies. Rather than living into the message given to us of we don't need empire. We just need each other. Yeah. So... It seems like a little bit of a shift, but maybe it's not. One question I kind of like to ask is if you had a queer magic wand that you could wave over Christianity and change something, what would that be? I heard you say earlier, you know, removing power. I want people to love themselves. I hear so much fear. The fear that well, th this concept that I'm, I call the, the theology of scarcity, there's not enough to go around. If we let them into our country, then you won't have enough. If we let them have their way, you will be lacking. But in reality, there's enough, enough of everything to feed everyone. You know, I, I drive through some of the, the subdivisions, and it doesn't matter which city you drive through. You know, I've been in, in this past four or five months, I've, I've been in New York and San Francisco and Houston and Dallas and um, Charlotte, and I live in a little town just outside of Denver, close to Boulder. And I see these housing developments with these five, 6,000 square foot homes with one family. Does anybody need that much room? I don't know. I live in a 1,200 square foot, three bedroom rent style home, and I'm very happy here. And I can barely keep it clean, and that makes me happy. But if we took all the resources that we put into building an F 35 jet and building a housing development, we could take all the people off the streets and give them a place to live. And when you have an address, someplace where you live, guess what? You can get mail and you can actually apply for a job. You can be a productive member of society. But we get so self-centered and individualistic. If I can't have exactly what I want, then nobody else can have it either. In many ways, the gospel that I read is about, yes, a lot about we need to share what we have. And I would say some people have called me a socialist, but you know, socialism, as I understand it, means 
that the government would take over the means of production. And honestly, I really don't trust government. So actually, I think I'm closer to being a communist in that we need to be sharing everything and not allowing government or structures or laws to govern, but rather we need to be listening with each other. We need to be building community with each other. We need to nurture cooperation rather than competition. And that that abundance mindset goes back to the fish and loaves. Precisely. You know, was it two loaves and five fish? Well, Nicole, I'm so grateful for your time and just your voice and your work in the world. So thank you so much for joining today. Oh, Cassidy, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be with you. And I hope our paths cross again very soon. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. You can also learn more about me and my work at CassidyHall.com. This podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Into the Deep by Daniele Musto. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. You can find out more at christiancentury.org. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources and tools, head over to enfleshed.com.